0: Hey Brian. Hey Vic. You're listening to Game Federer, a podcast where Brian and I relive and revisit every Roger Federer Grand Slam title. Today we are going to talk about Roger's 13th Grand Slam title, the 2008 US Open. A little, but we're also going to talk a lot about this year uh since his last title 2007's u.s open it was a rough year brian to say the least um before that though i want to talk about some topical stuff with you um because things have changed as they have tended to do over the past couple of months since we started this project everything has been in flux literally on a, a weekly if not daily basis dimitrov grigor dimitrov that is and novak djokovic have covid we texted the minute it happened uh and a few days have passed since but what's the fallout
1: well i mean first and foremost you hope that they recover and make full recoveries and that everybody around them is safe because i think djokovic had said that his wife had also tested positive uh born at church uh who was also part of this little ring of players at this Adria tour organized by Novak Djokovic. He tested positive, so it's been going around right now. Um, and the fallout is that I think it makes everybody stop and wonder about, okay, how are we going to do this going forward? It's made a lot of other players unhappy, some vocally so, like Nick Kyrgios. Others have been a little more quiet about their displeasure. But I think when everybody could see the pictures of what they were doing in this tour, it was it raised some eyebrows because... Yeah, they had government sign-off, government clearance, but full stadiums, Nobody's very few people wearing masks, everybody's up close, you see the players hugging, you see them at nightclubs, and you're just thinking, this seems off for right now. And then sure enough, as we sit here, it was, would have been last weekend, you saw uh, Dimitrov withdraw from his match Saturday, re- retire mid-match uh, against Borna Church on Saturday. church then... Dimitrov didn't even want to shake his hand because he, I guess, smart at that point. Chorich that night plays Djokovic. Next day, uh, Dimitrov tests positive, so they call everything off. Chorich then tests positive. Djokovic then gets on a plane, flies back to Belgrade, which is also a a bit of a head scratcher. He tests positive. Goran Ivanisovic, his coach, the former Wimbledon champion, he's tested positive. And you also had Victor Troicki, who was part of this series, uh, the charity tournament, played in Serbia and Croatia. He tested positive as well. Um, So yeah, you hope everybody recovers, but it just goes to show the seriousness of what the entire world's living through. And it also goes to show that there's no area of the world right now that's exempt from this coronavirus. As we sit here, um, it's Monday. It would be the first day at Wimbledon. Djokovic would be taking the court um, for his title defense, opening it up on center court one o'clock. But very different world we're in here in 2020. And uh, I don't think anything drives it home more succinctly than where he currently is right now.
0: Can't overstate how crazy that notification pop up on my phone was just moments after us talking about the future, what the rest of this year looks like. Um, is there any, or has there been any assignment of blame? You mentioned Nick curios. Um, like, obviously, this is this is well within the parameters of what they're allowed to do, but what is that tournament and 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 like has there been any sort of like not official sanctions or or penalties, but like has there been like a has there been a statement from the ATP or any of the other grand slams or anything official in that regard?
1: Nothing really official um and what this is the Adria Tour it was an exhibition. it was held. I mean, it, it, there were other events planned, but it was only played in Belgrade and then a, a town in Croatia called, uh, I believe it's Zadar, pronounced Zadar. And that's where all the positive tests took place. And it was designed to showcase players from that part of the world, to show off that area of the world. Look beautiful. I mean, that's, I would say, one positive. Once all this is over, I would actually like to travel to the uh, Croatian coast. I hope to get there one day. Um, but they want to show off those players, give them an opportunity. You have the big names and then you also have some of the, uh, you know, the, the local rising guys who get a chance to play with these these top players. Um, you bring tennis to fans who don't usually get that many ATP tournaments in the course of a year. You're seeing the world number one, who's really a national hero in Serbia and Djokovic. So there hasn't been an official sanction, and, be, and we we do have to say he was within, and the tour's organizers they were within the legal guidelines of what was allowed in those places that those events were taking place. You could then question, okay, well, how about his judgment? That's a whole different article. We could talk about that later. Um, uh, there's been questions. Okay. You know, Djokovic is the president of the players council. That's the closest thing the ATP has to a players union. So you're there's been some questions like how, how can he sit atop this council when he's doing this? Um, some other player, no Rubin of the United States have been critical um, when there were these these Zoom calls taking place about what the US Open was going to look like, about the resumption of play scheduled for August for the the ATP tour that like a Djokovic wasn't on that Zoom call. He's the head of the player council, but he's involved in in activities for this exhibition tour that doesn't really it's not it's good for Djokovic, but it's not really great for the other several hundred members of the ATP. So a lot of it, it does raise a lot of questions. Um but you know the genie's out of the bottle um uh, i mean here we are i would say the it's almost like the spillover has been worse because you now have there's still other events going on um this patrick mortagalu Murat- he has his uts the ultimate tennis showdown we talked about that last time in nice and there are far more um you watch that and you're you're thinking like okay they are taking this more seriously like there's no crowd Mm. players are isolated on court it seems like they're doing it the right way but you still have players dominic team for example flying back and forth to different exhibitions and that seems to defeat the whole purpose just yesterday alexander zverev he was part of this Adriat tour and he had said okay i tested negative but i'm going to self-isolate for 14 days he showed up in somebody's instagram story in a like a beach bar somewhere I, i don't know where it was in that you know, coastal area of Europe, but not a place where you're going to be self-isolating in a crowded bar. It was outdoors, but still it it goes against, you know, the whole thing. And at, at a certain point, you just wonder, tennis is the ultimate individual sport. We talk about, okay, how are NBA players going to stay inside their bubble when they restart the season at Disney world in Orlando in a couple of weeks. And you think, okay, but an NBA team is different because there's 12, 15 guys on the roster. So there's some examples to set tennis, you are the ultimate individual. You don't really, you're not always thinking about the greater good. So in some ways it just goes against the way these guys are programmed to not go out and live the life of a well-paid athletic 20-something year old. That's a pretty good life. And it's not really in their DNA to just stop that on a dime.
0: Zverev I read is who Kyrgios was targeting his, Uh, Displeasure with, uh, in addition to Djokovic and company, correct? Like, what's, what's, yeah, well, he's had had a lot to say.
1: Yeah. Well, he had talked about Djokovic after the initial, um, positive diagnosis test for, yeah. Well, not so much for Joe, you know, he basically said, like, I hope everybody recovers and all that, but he was critical of that, that went on. But yeah, he essentially on his Instagram just put up a, a multiple video story of him just basically saying, like, are you kidding me? It was very, because, you know, you really think about this. We're a little over a month away from the resumption of the tour, and these are the kinds of things that could really ruin it for everybody. Um, because it's it's one person not doing the right thing that can blow the whole thing up. Biggest name and in you the shut sport. shut everything down again. One of the biggest yeah, names absolutely. in the sport. Absolutely. Th-
0: that tour was completely unnecessary. Is that a fair statement?
1: Um, I-, I see Djokovic's point in terms of Put it this way. I I think it's hard to tell them just not to do anything. Is it a great idea? No, it's very easy to say that in hindsight. But I think it's fair to say it could have been done a lot better. Yeah. Although it was, as we said, it was done within the parameters. Then you can question the government there in those countries that why are they allowing this? Just because it's not the virus isn't isn't there, isn't as widespread doesn't mean it can't show up because it certainly did when you have these guys flying all over the place to come and take part of it.
0: Is this... This is a very doomsday question, but you know, this is what this is all about. Let's just talk it through. Um, Does this cancel any upcoming events?
1: Um, I think it's too early to say. I think let's hope that this was a big warning to everybody that you've got and not a fatal body blow. Yeah, I think it's early enough, um, or it happened far enough out that it's not a fatal body blow. And let's just hope
0: players will be comfortable playing against him.
1: That's a Well, against him, yeah, I think that's okay. But in terms of players picking up and traveling to the United States, that might be a different story. Uh, Guys, uh, some of the women have talked about how maybe they're not as comfortable. Some of the men have even said the same thing. Um, So that is also something that remains to be seen. I think they'll be okay playing against him, um, but mainly because he's already now had it. And this is all assuming he's back at full health and he can be ready to go once the – the U S open and the events before it get underway in just a couple of weeks.
0: Do you see the players wearing masks on the court?
1: No. Um, just because I, I don't think it would do much good. It seems like they're far, like they're able to stay far enough away. Yeah. Um, it's also uh, last week there over and over the weekend, they did an event and it's fitting is this episode. We're going to talk about Andy Murray. It was organized by Jamie Murray, Andy's brother is the battle of the Brits. And it was essentially the British National Championship. And they did the whole thing at the National Tennis Center they have there, played indoors, and it was a tournament. And it was really cool. They put it on Amazon Prime. I mean, tennis is one of the the major sports in Britain, so you have a a big following for it. Um, And it it went off really well. Um, The protocols were strict. There were no fans. Everything seemed to be going the right way. Um, so there have been events that have been staged properly. The women just put together an event in Charleston where one of the big women's tournaments would have been played earlier this spring. Obviously, it wasn't. They played an exhibition series. Um, I mean, the players on the court are in masks, but pretty much everybody else is. Um, so I, I, there, are, there have been things done properly, but it's the, the big spectacle that was clearly not done properly that we are talking about here.
0: Moving into the past now um, to an era where we saw tennis happen regularly and with frequency and these clashes of the titans uh, that took place, strokes of genius, if you will, uh, to play along with the, some of the stuff we're going to talk about today and that book by uh, John Wertheim. Um, this, was, this episode is going to focus on Roger's last U.S. Open title, which is a crazy thing to say. It could have been a uh, Federer-Nadal final, but Murray beat Nadal in the semis, uh, which we're going to talk about. Had Rafa won, he would have been the first player, I believe, since Rod Laver. um, I'm doing this from memory, so correct me if I'm wrong here. To win on clay, grass, and hard court that year. Has that happened? Has someone won on hard court? Clay and grass in the same year, or does Rod Laver still stand alone? Uh,
1: I believe Djokovic in twenty fifteen. Of course, he did. Yeah, I mean, as you said, he puts together some of the greatest seasons of all time. So he oh, no, won on. No, he did not. He did not. He did not win the French Open that year. The okay. French Open for Djokovic came the following year. I forgot twenty sixteen was when he completed the Grand Slam. So no, it has not been done since.
0: That's an easy enough stat to look up. I told you before we got on, Mike, that I left my notes behind. I uh, I, I sorted by uh, French Open titles, and that would be the only way you could just right. look. To who won the French that wasn't Nadal, and then did they win on grass and hardcore, But I couldn't remember.
1: Federer just misses that the following year when yes. he does win the French Open, wins Wimbledon, loses the U.S. Open final to Del Potro, and he lost the Australian final to Nadal. So he had his chances had his uh, the following year in 2009. Yeah. Well, actually, when you look at uh, so now it's not the calendar year; it's like that Tiger, or the Serena Slam, because right. so by Wimble- the end of Wimbledon 2009, he had a hard court, grass court, clay court title, but they weren't the same calendar year. So yeah, the 08 U.S., 09 French, 09 Wimbledon, but that's not the same calendar year.
0: Before we jump into the U.S. Open, let's talk about the road to the U.S. Open. A rough road, Brian. Obviously, we're sitting here armchair quarterback in this thing. He was in a bunch of finals. He just lost a lot of them. But I'm going to list the losses here. And I think it's safe to say, this is the first time that we've ever talked about this many losses in a single season um, after Roger Federer's sort of status as one of the greatest of all times. First, he lo- and this is a- everything I'm going to tell you is after the 2007 U.S. Open that we talked about last time. Yeah. He loses the Madrid Masters to uh, David Nalbandian, wins at Basel, beating Yarko uh, Nieminen. Then he lost the Paris Masters in the round of 16 to Nalbandian. So he lost to Nalbandian twice, which again, if I'm building a case over here, I'm definitely going to apply those two statistics in my argument. He wins the Masters Cup, beating Roddick, Rafa, and Ferrer. So there's some good momentum. But then he takes that momentum into the Australian Open 2008, where he goes through Hartfield, Santoro, Topserovich, Burdick, Blake, and then loses to Djokovic in the semifinals. And I'm building, all of this is to build up to rank here, uh, Brian, which I'd like you to speak on. Roger still ranked number one at this point. Loses to Djokovic in the semis in straight sets. This is the first uh, men's final Roger would miss since 2005. And Roger said afterward in this match, I've created a monster that I need to win every tournament. Still, the semifinals isn't bad. Who won that Australian Open?
1: That's Djokovic. Djokovic, uh, a strange Australian Open final. Djokovic, Sanga, very young Sanga, his only uh, major final, but this was the Djokovic breakthrough at what is now his most successful Grand Slam.
0: That was his maiden voyage, if you will, for the...
1: Maiden voyage, but I will say here... And it's an important thing to note, Federer, that this time is coming off of mono. And he wasn't really talking about it at the time. It's something we've only learned in hindsight. Now, is he sick when he's on the court against Djokovic in the Australian semifinals? No, he, he's okay at that point. But I've never had mono, fortunately, but you hear just how much it saps your energy. So if he had mono, you know, early, let's say December 07, January 08, that puts a major, major, wrench into the training block because you look at the length of a tennis season, how it's so stretched out. And especially if you're Federer, you're playing deep in every tournament, you're playing the tour finals at the end of the year, you have the longest season pretty much out of everybody. Um, so you really have to be judicious about when you're going to do your off-season fitness training. Now, Federer had always decamped to Dubai, um, put in a good block there, worked out well for him and away he went. But that year, Let's just think, and he's not talking about this, but we can speculate a little bit here. He's not able to get that full block of fitness in because his body's not right. We've talked often about how fortunate Federer's been health-wise. This was one of the times where it caught him, and not even his body, but in terms of like a physical injury, but just getting sick. And you do wonder how much that just didn't allow him to charge out of the gates in 2008.
0: This was before the Australian Open, the monodiagnosis. Yes. Okay. Yes. All right. Interesting. After Australia, he loses to Andy Murray in Dubai, round of 32. So Andy's got a win notch under his belt here, which will be relevant going forward uh, to this uh, Grand Slam, the U.S. Open. Um, Then he loses to at Indian Wells in the semifinals to Marty Fish in straight sets. Again, no disrespect to any of these players, okay? But up to this point, Brian, these would all be like proverbial little fly flicks for him off of the, off of the skin, if you will. Um, and he's losing. Loses again at the Miami Masters uh, in the quarterfinals to Roddick. Who's a rival, yes. But again, he's had no problem with him up to this point. Wins on clay, which was interesting, at a venue. I don't know if you can speak to this venue, but I'm curious about it. Estoril, hope I said that correctly. Yeah. Which is a tournament we haven't encountered him winning yet, let alone play in. He beat Davidenko there. What of Estoril, Brian?
1: Estoril is a clay tournament in Portugal. At the, um, it's different now in that it's a 250. Um, it used to be like a bigger deal. It was called the Portugal Open, and I think it might have been. Yeah, this is they had the old system, the International Series, but it's always been yeah, players. Lo- I mean, Portugal is supposed to be a great place. Players love going there. I mean, it's a clay tournament, so it's not a place where you're going to see Federer doing really heavy lifting or even, as we say, showing up. But I, I do wonder with that year. He um, played a lot schedule- of clay
0: this year, a lot of clay.
1: Right, and I wonder, is it, okay, I'm going to make a big run at winning the French Open this year? I think it was probably that um because you're not going to usually see him jumping into a 250, uh tuning up for clay. But on the flip side of that, He hadn't played quite as many matches just because the year was not off to the start he wanted. You know, that early loss in Dubai. So is this a last-minute decision to jump into Estoril? Or you could also then just say, did Estoril throw a whole back of a boatload of uh, money up to him and say, you want to come play our tournament? Here you go. Why don't you come? Um, And that might have done it too. But yes, that's the first title. He's out of the blocks. Uh, Doesn't really beat uh, a star-studded field. He gets the two-seed Davidenko in the final, actually retired in the final um but he gets the title and it's all the same
0: are those deals if they paid him a bunch of money are those public or are those private behind closed door deals
1: um like the tournament's not going to come out and say how much except in the case i think last year washington the new owner who we talked about mark ein yeah i think he had mentioned how uh, sasha alexander zverev sasha zverev was the two-time defending champion but he had Significantly raised his asking price, and they determined it was better to spread that money out amongst other players. Uh, but that was rare. You don't usually hear it talked about that in such a black and white fashion. Interesting. Um, they're not like it's not illegal, but it's just, yeah. you know, it's one of those like business things. You just. Right,
0: right, like, right. No, just, you know, just like with like public stocks, like you learn about the acquisition price stuff in the earnings report. And, um, but if you're a private company, you don't have to disclose anything if you don't want to. So I was just wondering where in the line on the spectrum that fell, if it was something that was like newsworthy, right? Like if it would get reported in the press and it seems like it isn't the actual terms of the agreements with players.
1: Good rule of thumb. If you see a player at a tournament and you think, why are they playing that tournament? The answer is usually money.
0: (laughs) Perfect. Thank
1: you. I don't know if that's the case here though. I will say that in Estoril.
0: A lot of clay, like we just mentioned. Loses at Monte Carlo Masters to Nadal in the final. I think you've told me in the past that uh, Monte Carlo is one of the Masters that uh, Federer has not won. Is that
1: correct? Monte Carlo in Rome. Rome. I will also point out, yeah, he did not beat Nadal. semifinal against Djokovic, and this is relevant based on uh, recent events, Uh, Djokovic retires in the semifinal, but it's noteworthy because, so on a clay court, there's no Hawkeye. Um, because it doesn't work, yes, or it's right, not as accurate. Totally as. So basically, what happens is the chair umpire comes down and will look at the mark. But the sporting form is that if the ball misses and it's called good, like let or strike that reverse it. Like let's say I'm you hit the ball to me, it's called out, but it was good. I'll kick over. I'll just kick the mark, and it's the signal to like just replay the point that was good. There was a it's I believe it still lives on YouTube. There was an incident with the Djokovic parents were, I guess, on Federer's side of the court, and he didn't like how chatty they were because uh, that situation happened. The ball, I think, had missed and Djokovic's parents jump up and say the ball was out. Federer actually looks up at them and says, like, be quiet, and then he just kicks the marks. I mean, he's replaying the point. But that, I think, is a good example of the edginess that existed in that rivalry, the Djokovic-Federer rivalry. I say this now because some of the comments that Djokovic's father recently made um, pre-the COVID-19 diagnosis for Novak in, um, I I don't know if it was Slovenia or in Serbia. I think it was most likely Serbia. um, Towards Federer, basically saying, like, he – he should not be playing anymore. It's like why he's just playing because he can't stand the thought of Novak or Rafa winning more titles than him. So he's still out here. That was the rough essence translation of what it was.
0: This was the, when he told him to be quiet, you're speaking about the, this was at the Monte Carlo masters this year that he lost in a doll. He beat Novak earlier and it was that match. It was in the semis. Yeah. Got it. Also, speaking of his dad, What's his deal? He just did. He just said something about the COVID that you mentioned pre COVID-19 about Roger. Apparently he said something about Novak's diagnosis as well. And like, and like kind of
1: put the blame on Dimitrov if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. What's his deal? A couple of people have done that with, with Dimitrov because he was the one who came from outside. Um, And yeah, that's not the way this, this works. I mean, we, (laughs) we, as we learn more about the virus, like it's, it's a virus. Like, it's not. But his dad um, is
0: like the LeVar ball of tennis.
1: He just. I'm not going quite that far. But okay. yeah, I mean, he's been more, he's more outspoken. I mean, he has been less so in the past couple of years. Like, he's taken more of a background role. But I mean, he's an upfront guy. Yeah. Um, or I don't know if upfront's the right word, but he's a, like an outspoken guy. And um, yeah, at times. He's a
0: zero F's given guy.
1: Yes. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's not quite LeVar ball, but it's, uh, yeah, he's, a, he's an outspoken guy.
0: You know what? If if Novak's dad heard us saying that, he would probably say, "Lavar Ball has got nothing on me. Yeah. <laughs> okay, more clay. So he lost in the doll in the final. Obviously yes. not a good thing for his headspace. He loses in Rome in the quarterfinals to Stepanek. Lots of clay. 2008 uh, for Roger. I think this is the most clay he's played to this point for sure. Uh, based on what I looked at just looking back at uh, his calendar lineup loses the hamburg masters on clay to nadal again in the final and then of course loses to roland uh, to uh, nadal at the french open final and this was a big deal lost in straight sets It was a little under 2 hours and it was considered i don't know if it was considered by roger if roger actually admitted this but certainly by the press and certainly by anybody who knows tennis It was considered his worst defeat, um, certainly in terms of games won. Do you know, Brian, if there has been a worse loss or defeat
1: since? Uh, Yeah, when Nadal beat him at the French Open last year. Um, But no, this was, I mean, he got trucked in this final. Um, And if you look at the scoreline, like it's, like he just never, he was never in the match. Like he's playing, and if you watch it, like he played like tentative tennis, Especially when you look back at the Hamburg final a couple of weeks earlier, where Federer jumps out to the lead, wins the first set, or excuse me, tight, loses a tight first set, wins a second set tie break, and then it's all Nadal in the third set. This, he, was, he never had a chance. like He was just on the back foot from the beginning. And I think at this point, it really shifts from, okay, is this, is this the year that Federer is going to get it done, win on clay? And it very quickly shifted to, okay, is this a year Nadal is going to win on grass and beat Federer at Wimbledon? I mean, he smoked him in the final.
0: Yet he still made it to the final, which is, you know, it's the Oh yeah. The distinction. No, but but the but the the but the thing worth noting and and realizing is that he could beat everybody else, but the gap between him and Nadal was still pretty wide. And it didn't matter the fact that he was in the final. They could have played you know, whatever, the there was a huge disparity and you saw that on full display. And if you're looking at that goat comparison that we talked about a few weeks ago, Roger never dominated Rafa on grass, whereas Rafa always dominated Roger on clay. That's the point here, kind of. And if nothing else, I can imagine how demoralizing this year must have been for him because we still have some more losses to talk about. Yeah. He wins at Hala which is grass. And then, of course, I don't know how you feel about this, uh, this this declarative statement, but this is a very painful match for me to watch, the 2008 Wimbledon final. It took me, How? what year are we in? 2020? 20. I just listened to the audiobook, book, uh, Strokes of Genius, a few weeks ago. So it has taken me 12 years to revisit this match. Um, uh, this morning, I watched a little bit of the documentary from the BBC that was based on the book. I don't know if you've seen that. Very well done. It's taken me 12 years, is the kind of the overarching point here. So I can imagine how tough it was for him to kind of revisit this. But it's probably more important, I would argue, than the victory at US Open, which is sort of the umbrella uh, purpose of this episode. But this loss was critical because it accomplished a lot of things and it established a lot of things in terms of this being the back nine for Roger or the beginning of the back nine for Roger. But what's your takeaway on this Wimbledon 2008 loss?
1: Well, it's just amazing because when you talk about, you know, the great matches of all time, this this is one of them, but then we're talking about Federer as maybe the greatest player of all time. And you don't usually talk about the greatest player of all time losing right. one of the greatest matches of all time. You look back to the early 80s with the McEnroe board finals and how competitive they were. And it's one of those things where, okay, somebody has to lose. Um, and the thing with this final too, it was the drama of the rain delays and the darkness and are they going to finish? And Thank God they finished, by the way. It would have been the ultimate anti-climax. If they had to come back at like one o'clock on a Monday to play the, like a set of the Wimbledon final. Like to be able to finish that day, I mean, it was, uh, it was cinematic. It the was flashes, the last one with when the no, flashes
0: go off. Yeah. Crazy. I don't think we've ever seen a match like that with the flashes going off like that at the end. No, because
1: it's never that dark. Um, this is the last, uh, the last match at Wimbledon on center court without the roof. It was ready to go, uh, the following year in 2009. Actually, that might be wrong. No, because I think Federer beat Murray or Andy Roddick on a Monday. So no, this was not the last match without a roof, but um yeah just the drama of it all I mean that that tie break in the fourth set the 10-8 Federer wins the tie break I mean it's one of the great tie breaks ever played then he loses the fifth set I mean it's just it had everything Nadal races out to the lead you're thinking okay here we go again Federer wins the wins first two, t- sets.
0: Wins first the two th- sets what do you make Federer of Federer w- coming
1: back I mean I, I think nobody should have been surprised um it's Federer playing at Wimbledon like and it's not like he got blown out in those sets. I mean, he, it was like a break a piece in each of the two sets. Um, wins the third set tie break. Fourth set, like we said, one of the great tie breaks of all time. You're doing all this around the rain. I mean, there is nothing separating these guys. And there was nothing separating them even in that fifth set. 9-7 mm. for Nadal. That's, that's it. Um, and it's just, it's just amazing that Federer loses one of the greatest matches of all time. At
0: the beginning of the match, Rafa came out with his racket in hand, whereas Roger did not. And we talked about the Wimbledon convention. I thought it was uh, amusing that Rafa came out with the racket and he was clutching that thing so tight, like like as if to say, I'm not letting go of this racket. I am going on to the battlefield with my weapon. Um, and there was just a stark, there was a stark contrast there. And then I also noticed I paid particular attention to their uh, pre-match a photo op at the net, and then the way that Nadal always does—he the way he runs, he sprints to the baseline. But this is the this is the this was his Wimbledon, and so that sprint had a little bit more extra vigor in it than normal, if you will. Yeah. A couple of observations on the match: the amount of opportunities both of them had, and the way that they defended it. Right. So the fourth set, Rafa's two points away from winning, and his first point was a double fault, and then Fed gets it to five five. And then you hear the commentator saying it's either set point or match point from here on in. That was just, I remember hearing that in yeah. real time. And it's just, you, I, I, I was probably standing up pulling the hair off of my chest when they said it. And then roughly gets-
1: That's just the beauty of tennis and the format where it could be over in two minutes or in two hours. Yes. And you don't know. Yes. Like it's well not, said. it's- it's great, like just that drama, I mean, yeah, does it lend itself to uh scheduling and television? No, that's why there's people who want to get away from the best of five sets, but in in this situation, I mean, you could not have drawn up a better script.
0: you don't get that exhilaration any other way, you know uh the brink of victory or defeat it's it's you know it's it's like bottom of the ninth, two outs you know with men on right it's that that's the best kind of baseball it's yeah. not it's not like up by 5 or whatever and there's you know it's no one on base these are the the situational playoff baseball and this situational tennis is what makes the makes those two sports endure i think despite these clocks and the race to modernity to make it faster and quicker and cleaner and more of a sort of like i can squeeze this into my schedule type of a situation right rafa gets match point on roger's serve and federer saves it and then he turns around and gets match point on his serve and Federer saves it again. And those are two quintessential moments. And I think, uh, my brain is mush. Five-time Wimbledon champion, uh, Borg. Borg mentioned yes. those as being like, like when does that happen? When does someone get match point on their serve and then not close it out? And then get match point on the other person's serve and then not close it out? Like When do you see that get defended? It's rare. Um, and then, of course, the camera flashes at the end um just it is it is an amazing match i am a, i am more of a rafa fan than i am a Djokovic fan so i can accept it now but uh <laughs> what a way to lose and 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 by extension what a way to win right to be uh in, in a in many ways it kind of erased rogers previous five wimbledon victories because this one was done in such dramatic fashion
1: Right, and it's funny you say. As a Federer fan, you're happier with Rafa winning. Um, yes,
0: that's a fact. And Djokovic,
1: Bec- but what's funny is I I think there's a maybe a case to be made that last year's Wimbledon final was better. Uh, Joe, in terms of drama, especially I mean, Djokovic saving championship points, um, first guy to do that in 70 years, and then win Wimbledon. I mean, you can make the argument that was better. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, the tiebreak turned into a bit of an anti climax, but still, you're in a fifth set tiebreak, first time ever in the Wimbledon final. But that just goes to show the the whole Federer and Nadal, uh, Djokovic dynamic, especially among their fans, where it's the Federer and Nadal co equal view. And then, yeah, and then Echelon. everybody has Djokovic, like they look at him differently.
0: Which is completely subjective, but I'm going to bring it up. I'm going to bring up part of the reason where this came from. It happened in a uh, either a quarterfinal or a semifinal match against Roddick in the U.S. Open we're talking about today. Um, let's save that for then. But there's a vi- I remember it vividly what we're going to talk about. All right, so lost at Wimbledon, and he's not done losing, Brian. Loses the Canada Masters in the first round. Loses Cincinnati Masters in the second round. At this point, I got to ask, how did he keep his number one rank?
1: Because he had... Built up, I mean, he's still getting, I mean, with the exception of uh, the early loss in Canada, he's still going deep enough in the tournaments that he's got enough points to make, like Wimbledon final, okay, you drop off. Um, But he had the US Open points still there and, you know, the strong back half of 2007. There were enough points that had not yet fallen off um, that he's able to keep that number one ranking. Well, he lost it after Wimbledon. Yes. Well, he
0: still had the one ranking at the Olympics uh where he lost in the quarterfinals to Blake and then finally after all this string of losses and string of heartbreak mostly for the fans I'm sure he was just fine um we get to the US Open and he comes in as a 2 seed into this US Open um Nadal is number 1 and Djokovic is at 3 the the firmament is set now for the rest of this podcast series and pretty much you know the is men's tennis as we know it this is it 2008 US Open, um, as far as the upper echelon, before we get into the matches or the players, what'd you think of his red look?
1: Big fan of this look. I like the shorts. Um, they were like kind of almost like a slate ish color. Um, uh, the red shirt was, a, was a good look. This was a, uh, you know, it's, it's, he had a very good look the next year too, which we'll talk about down the road when he loses to Del Potro, he had black with like red trim, but you know, I like the red, he would still wear the black at night. This was a good look for Federer. His hair was on the
0: longish side, though. It
1: was like very much so.
0: Very, I think this is the longest it's been since the ponytail, which was to me a little distracting. I felt like on a couple of the double faults I saw, I was like, man, if you had just gotten a haircut, those would have <laughs> been aces. Those would have been clean yeah. aces down the line. He blows through this again. N- nothing of real note here. Maximo Gonzalez in the first round, Diego Alves, Roddick Stepanek, Igor Andreev, he goes five sets. That was the only real test. Guy Muller. Hope I said that right. Gilles Muller. Gilles Muller. And then Novak in the semifinals. Wins it in four sets. This after Novak played a quarterfinal against Andy Roddick, where he beat Roddick pretty good. But there was a little back and forth between the two of them. And Roddick has spoken about this since and believe they're, they're totally cool now. But then they almost got into a fight post-match and there were some barbs on court. There was some stuff pre-match that Roddick said about all the various types of forms of illnesses or injuries that Djokovic had. My issue, an issue with so many, apparently it was a whole crowd full of people at Ash Stadium was Djokovic's response, the way he conducted himself post-match, and I had just spoken to you about how well he handled losing to Federer and how sort of coached he was on being gracious in defeat. What do you remember from this time, uh, from this match, and what do you have to say kind of about Novak's evolution, if you will?
1: I mean, so I was never really a pro wrestling fan, but this is like, He's a heel. I mean, he is the ultimate heel. Um, Roddick has a lot to say before the match. They go out on court. Warranted guys, or unwarranted? Um, I would say it's, I mean, probably unwarranted. Like, it's, you're taking shots at somebody else. You don't know what's going on. Yeah. Um, like, it's probably, like, I would think Roddick maybe regrets saying that. Maybe not. Um, then he goes out, beats him. And then it's just the. Think of it this way: the encore interview. You know these guys are usually such pros about it, and women. But Djokovic's a little bit younger here. The guy comes out. I mean, the crowd has been firmly against him the entire match. He beats their guy. One of his. And he flexes.
0: He flexes. flexes. Yeah.
1: One of his big wins that year. The adrenaline's got to just be coursing through him. So he's gonna chirp a little bit more. Like I think it's he's thinking like Roddick had his chance to pop off. Now I just beat him. So I'm gonna pop off a little bit too. Um, it cannot have felt good. But to he went just, after the people. That's the thing. He didn't, well, talk, it's because, he didn't stick to Roddick. Right.
0: He stuck to he went to, he went at the people, which was like not what you do no matter what.
1: Right? Uh, right. But I will say that, you know, he'd been on court for however long that match was. And for every, since he had stepped out on court, he's hearing it from those fans. Um, After he wins, you know, Roddick walks off, but he's still out there in front of those fans. So, like, he just beat Roddick on the court. Now he's going to, like, spike one in front of the fans, too. Um, Victory lap. Yeah, it was a victory lap. Um, So, yeah, it was not what you are used to seeing. It was pretty brash. Um, it didn't, I would say it still hasn't really indeed, like he still is not a favorite at the U S open, like of the crowd. Like there's certainly respect for him, but he has never been adored like Federer, like Nadal, like other people. Um, and I think a lot of it does date back to that. That did not help. No, it didn't help, but it's also maybe unfair. I mean, he's 21 years old here. He's a punk, like it's now 12 years and hopefully we get it. There won't be fans this year, but hopefully there's a U.S. open. Um, he got it. Like I, he has tried, I would say in the years since, you know, with his dancing, he's uh, really appreciates the show. I mean, he's been a great champion. He's a great the entertainer, he's
0: a great entertainer yes. and a great champion. No question.
1: Um, So I, he has tried uh, since, but this, yeah, this was not getting the relationship off on the right foot because the year before it's like, okay, who's this guy going up against Federer? Yeah. Uh, This is cute. Like, you know, let's say the casual tennis fan. It's like, Oh, we're going to watch Federer win again. Like who does he have this time? Right. It's not Nadal. It's nobody we've heard of before Federer wins. That's great. Now this year it's like, Whoa, Whoa, this is not what we thought we were getting from this guy. He's out here talking trash to the American beating the American and then doing a touchdown dance. I think that was sort of the reaction after.
0: Do you remember when you started to like dig him or like, was it, was it around this time or did, did your, did your appreciation for him evolve? Did it come later?
1: No, it definitely came later. I mean, sure. I appreciated him as like anybody who's winning major titles or at this point, it was one title in this era. Yeah. Yeah. Is worthy of attention. But I mean, the, the 2010, 2011, when he beat Federer in the semifinals and back-to-back years, was back against the wall both times. I mean, that was... That's where you really... Yeah. Yeah, and then those subsequent finals. I mean, even in 10, when he lost the final to Nadal, just still the way he competed. 11, he beats Nadal. 13, um, I mean, he's Djokovic by that point. But, like, that, that final in 2013 at the U.S. Open, and Nadal wins it. But, I mean, these guys, uh, 50-shot rally. Like, there's... Plenty to appreciate with Djokovic, yeah. But yeah, it wasn't it wasn't quite here yet? You're still figuring it out.
0: Tell me, so tell when we get to that point in this series. Tell me when you think Djokovic became Djokovic for you personally. Okay, be sure to.
1: Well, I will actually say I'm going to jump in and say we're. To, it's it's going to be a weird gap in this series because it's going to you know Federer is going to win a few more here. Then he's going to the wins are going to spread out a little bit yeah. more. Yeah, and it's like he filled those gaps and it's more that he's the dominant force, and then it's Federer picking one or two off when he can. But no, I will certainly tell you yeah.
0: that. Uh, the fulcrum, you know, where the yeah. shift happened for you. Because right now, it's safe to say at the
1: end of this
0: episode, Nadal is sort of the number one guy. It's 1-2 it's Roger Rafa, but Rafa beating him at Wimbledon in 2008 uh, was a clear line in the sand for their rivalry. Fair statement?
1: Absolutely. And it, especially when you look at it over the course of the year, whereas since 2004, nobody had had a better year than Federer, four, five, six, seven. 2008, Nadal had a better year than Federer. So then it that puts it back up for grabs in 2009. And I, I would probably say Federer had a better year in 2009, but it becomes more of a competition. It's not the dominance factor has diminished because Nadal's so good, and then you've got these enemies at the gates, like the Djokovic's of the world, and then we're going to talk about Andy Murray here as well.
0: Roddick, to wrap things up on him, uh, he said about Novak, he the, the pull quote for me was, "He's either quick to call the trainer, or he's the most courageous guy of all time." Those are very Roddick's great, at, you know, oh, like tremendous, tremendous stuff. Um, okay, the final. I don't have a whole lot of emphatic moments here other than match point. Um, the flurry of overhead slams. Roger dominated him the way that he had been dominated by Rafa in finals prior. Um, but talk about Andy Murray and talk about Andy Murray's ascension. And also my sort of my whole thing with Rafa with Roger going forward here. Is as as a fan, purely as a as a subjective fan. Gosh, I hope Ro- I hope Novak and uh, uh, or uh, Rafa are not in the final so that my guy can win. I'm afraid of them at this point. And if Nadal beat Murray, do we have a different outcome?
1: I actually don't think we do because I think Nadal was just cooked by that point of the year. Because remember, like we said, this is an Olympic year. Um, so you've got Nadal in the middle of this historic run after he does what he does on clay. Then he goes out, wins Wimbledon. It's his career accomplishment. Then you go fly across the world to China, um, and he's playing singles and doubles at the Olympics um, on hard courts. There's that extra pressure. There's all those things that come with being in the Olympics. He wins the gold medal in both, uh, in the singles. Federer won the gold and doubles that year with, with Stan Wawrinka. But um, I, I just think the doll would have been not out of gas, but I don't think by that point he had enough left in the tank to beat Federer here. I think, I think Federer would have found a way to win that. I also think that desperation would have crept in for Roger. Like, Am I going to get shut out for the year in majors and go 0-3 against this guy in the finals? Like, I, I think there would have been that. You don't see Federer backed into a corner too often, but he would have been in that situation. I think he would have found a way out.
0: And What would you think about Andy Murray and his performance? And then also, like, how this tournament, if at all, contributes to his legacy.
1: Right. So, I mean, his 2008, like, he had started, you know, he, he wins his first tournament in 2006, his first ATP tournament. Um, he is the guy. There's so much hype around him because of coming from the UK. He's born in Scotland. Um, so there's just this thirst in that country for a, a British champion. You know, they had had Tim Henman. He could never get through to a final. They had had Greg Ruzetsky. He was the last one, uh, to reach a major final. Um, so there, there was pressure at a very young age on Murray. Um, and he had started to climb up through the ranks and his 2008 was his breakout year. He wins bang, bang off the bat in Doha and Marseille, um, and then the big breakthrough comes in the summer on the hard court when he wins Cincinnati, his first Masters title. He beats Djokovic in the finals. This is a guy he had grown up playing against. They're only separated by uh, maybe two months in terms of birthdays, so he it's somebody he came up with through the ranks. Mm. And then he goes to the U.S. Open beats Wawrinka, beats Del Potro, and then he beats Nadal, the great Rafael Nadal, the world number one in the semifinals. And here's his shot, first major final, but it's Roger Federer waiting. And I just think that it's part of that progression. Like there's guys who get through to a major final and that's the career accomplishment. But for Murray, um, I don't know if you knew he was going to win majors, but you thought he had a pretty good chance. But you did know it wasn't his time. Um, and that's what this was. I will also say very, uh, interesting quirk here. This was the first of what I believe were six or seven consecutive Monday finals for the men at the U S open, uh, because of rain, um, either on a Sunday or just backed up the tournament to the point where they had to finish on Monday, got to the point where the last one or two, they had started scheduling them for Monday. And that was just kind of odd. Yeah. Uh, They got back to Sunday. Now there's a roof, so we don't have to worry about that anymore. And we're back to Sunday finals.
0: It was a different game. It was a different match on Mondays. It didn't have the same.
1: No, it does feel. But even the Sundays can be a little bit odd because it's always um, the first NFL Sunday of right. the year. So you're dealing with the split, but you basically are like anybody who's okay. So the interests of the U S sporting world are not focused on the U S open. Yeah. But it's still a major final. So anybody who's there is committing to, it's going to be a charged up atmosphere.
0: One way to look at that. I've always agreed like, Oh wow. like They have to go up against the NFL, but it's uh, a guarantee that everybody's going to be glued to the TV because of the NFL. And you might get that residual audience who's checking in with all the sports. You know, I always of course cut away to uh, the U S open, but that is a, that is a minority with respect to the, the ratings of the NFL continued to baffle me.
1: Juggernaut. Just
0: like a random Sunday, 10 AM, 10 AM on the West coast, obviously a random game between two, like three and you know, nine teams will get better rankings than anything else on TV that week by a mile. They they lap it, you know, it just, it doesn't make sense, but.
1: I'm always amazed those like awful Thursday games between like, you know, like the Browns and Bills. Right. And it'll like out, like more people will watch that than watch like the world series.
0: Yeah. It's, it's insane. And I'm not, and I love sports, but I don't watch those Thursday night games. I'm kind of like, meh. And so I I just assume that most people are like meh, too but no people are dialed in um in a way that uh it's going to be interesting to see what it looks like though in the, in this new world of ours you know stuff is shutting down Broadway shut down through t- for the rest of the year pretty much there's yeah. no there's no stage plays But happening. I think
1: that it means that for sports that are able to go ahead I think the ratings will be through the roof. rocks through the roof no because whatsoever. everybody's gonna be i mean look at the jordan nfl ratings are high to begin with um and th- with people staying home not going to the games or maybe fewer people going to games um yeah it's gonna be astronomical
0: how do you feel about the games that or the some of the leagues saying they're gonna use like artificial intelligence or like video game fan noise like 2k noise to make it feel like there's an ambiance? because every time Every time there's a three in the playoffs, there's always like this abrupt roar and you see players, you're not going to see that anymore. It's going to look like a pickup game at like, you know, the 24 hour fitness. And so they have to like incorporate this faux atmosphere. Do you think it's going to go off well? Or do you think it's going to be a complete train wreck?
1: I think it'll be an adjustment period of like ten minutes, and then everybody will be used to it That's like a good,
0: good way to think of it as the
1: Premier League has come back, I just catched some of those games, and the, they have used the artificial crowd noise, and I was like, oh, this actually this is fine, like they're doing it right. I think as long as you do it's like putting you know a condiment on like a sandwich, you don't want to like drown it, but like enough will just give it a nice little season
0: yeah um a bill Marshall on h b o he does it by doing it in his backyard for however many months and When he tells jokes in his opening monologue, they cut away to like uh, television crowds from like a, you know, the (laughs) bygone era from like the 60s and 70s. And at first it was stupid, but now it's actually the way, like, yo, it's like part of the, it's part of the spiel. So it'll, it'll, we'll, we'll, we'll readjust along with it. But I can't imagine it being a smooth transition. But if they pull it off, it'll be amazing. Context or any stray items.
1: Um, big deal for Roger to win this just to, um, you know, exercise the, the Wimbledon demons, um, noteworthy to see Andy Murray in a major final, even though, you know, like we said, it was a straight sets loss. Um, but it's just a big deal because now this is two tournaments that Federer has won five years in a row. He had done it at Wimbledon the year before. Now he's got the U S open. And I think those are important bedrocks, uh, when you make his career argument, just that that longevity of dominance. Um, I also think you know it's it's always tough to make predictions, but I think a safe prediction: this was uh, he's not this is going to be the last U.S. Open he wins. I don't see him winning another one. Um, this puts him second on the all-time uh, major title list. Mm-hmm. So it's historic, and that's a major title. But I would say maybe his most historic major title is the one that's coming up next on our rundown here, because that's also a one-off.
0: Fourteen and he puts himself tied with Pete Sampras, right? So he's one away from the all-time record at this point. I will say that uh, as painful as 2008 was uh, for him, uh, professionally speaking, he still pulled out a Grand Slam in an otherwise year filled with brutal losses, right? Late in tournaments. Um, Yeah. First man to win five consecutive titles in two different tournaments. Um, Has anybody done that since? Five consecutive no. times in two different tournaments?
1: No, that's, I mean, yeah, you've gotten a doll, but he's never won anything else five times. Um, in a row. In a row.
0: And Novak he's, has not done, he's never done five in a row at the Australian. He, he's, he's, he's been staggered on the Australian Open. That's his best tournament. So Right. So we're approaching the back nine, Brian, on Roger's reign here, if you will. Um, bridge the gap before we say goodbye. Uh, from what's from what we've seen in the first 13 uh, to what's to come.
1: So I, I'm actually going to disagree with that premise. I think we get the, like, you can almost break it down by decade. Like, this is the decade of the aughts, whatever you want to call them. And this was like the dominant Federer decade. It's going to end with him completing the career Grand Slam, winning a, a pretty epic Wimbledon final that he, many ways, uh, should have lost to Andy Roddick. Then he's going to lose the U.S. Open final the following year to Juan Martin Del Potro. The teens, as he gets older, into his 30s, uh, they become tougher. But in some ways, you can almost cherish those more uh, because of what it takes to go through and win those. And there's when There's no you're expectation. Not well, it's not that there's no expectation, but you're not the guy anymore. Yeah. it's you, In some ways, you can almost cherish it more. So I don't think we're quite there yet on the back nine. but okay. Maybe... 2009 let's say is the ninth hole let's use let's just go all the way with this metaphor awesome i will actually uh tie this loose end up 2008 i know we talked last time about how shocking it was for the 07 u.s open when they talked about the uh, cbs broadcast talked about tiger woods compared to federer yeah and i said to you how it's amazing that since that 07 u.s open tiger has only won two more majors um and I will actually say two things about that. One, I, I went back and looked at that because it just floored me. And you do forget, I mean, the head start Tiger. He had won so many of those titles before Federer had broken through. Um, but also, you know, one of the definitive Tiger moments, that 2008 U.S. Open that he won, essentially on one leg, uh, in the playoff at Tory Pines, that was right around the time of that 2008 Wimbledon. So, I mean, seminal moments in the careers of both of these guys uh, coming close to the same time so that was just something that fascinated me
0: good stuff as always bud Um, I will see you next week where we discuss the 2009 French Open right
1: a one-off we'll head on to the clay for the one and only time
0: get your Robin Soderling uh, knowledge up okay yes all right I'll see you then thanks take care
1: thanks Vic